What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We have a chance to ride out this Omicron wave without shutting down our country once again. You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. We need to recognize that Russia is now calling the shots here. Mad in their sleaze with a divided party. A prime minister losing the support of his backbenchers yeah. and governing shambolically. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, on today's special programme, Russia's troop build-up on the border with Ukraine. It has led to a flurry of diplomatic efforts over the past few days and weeks. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has now agreed to meet US Secretary of State Antony Blinken for talks in Europe next week. Well, President Joe Biden is warning that the probability of an invasion of Ukraine is still very high. Russia has consistently denied any intention to attack its neighbour. The UK, meanwhile, is pledging a crackdown on dirty money flowing from Russia. Just yesterday, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, confirming the golden visa programme for millionaire investors is to be scrapped. Well, we have a number of guests to discuss this topic today. Uh, Marie Dumoulin, the Senior Policy Fellow Director uh, at the European Council on Foreign Relations, will be with us later. Also, uh, we'll be speaking to Rachel Davies, Head of Advocacy at Transparency International. But first, I want to go to Henry Mayer, Bloomberg's Henry Mayer in Moscow, for an update. Henry, good to have you on the programme. Just firstly, this is the big question, isn't it? In this latest crisis over Ukraine, what is Vladimir Putin's aim? Well, I think that you know, the concerns in Russia um, and expressed by, by Putin um, have been building up for, for many years. And essentially, this is about uh, the expansion of uh, NATO um, towards uh, Russia's borders. And Russia says that its concerns have been ignored for for many years, and uh, we have now reached a point where um, uh, the last few weeks, the last few months, um, you know, this build-up along the along the border with Ukraine, in a way, is seen as a form of blackmail, if you like. That Russia is uh, is trying to insist um, that its demands for a halt to the expansion of the alliance, that is the fundamental uh, demand, is finally ad- addressed. And what have we learned from Moscow's official response to these these latest proposals? There's really no softening in in Russia's position there, is there? Well, actually, I would argue the opposite. Um, the response that was published yesterday and that was sent to the United States uh, in some ways uh, marks a, a hardening of, of Russia's stance. Um, and, you know, apart from the fact that they, they threatened unspecified military technical measures, although 
once again, they deny that they're planning any invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there's some more specifics that they've added to their demands uh, regarding Ukraine in particular. They are demanding that um, there's a halt to any weapons deliveries by NATO countries to Ukraine, a halt to any training um, of Ukrainian armed forces. Um, and thirdly, they're demanding that any weapons that were previously supplied to Ukraine uh, be returned. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, far from um, being more flexible, they're actually um, being, you know, they're putting forward extra demands. Okay, so then in terms of the diplomacy ahead, we've had several weeks of it, but now we know that Sergei Lavrov and Antony Blinken, uh, so the top diplomats from the US and Russia, will meet. We don't have a date yet, it would seem, but next week in Europe. How important could that be, Henry? I think this meeting is extremely important because uh, it really um, marks an opportunity for the two sides to actually start some serious negotiations. I mean, since December, uh, we had the initial demands put forward by Russia, then the U.S. response, and then yesterday, uh, the, the Russia gave its, its, its counter-proposals. And I think the talks can now actually begin in earnest, and we will see relatively soon whether they can bridge those fairly huge differences uh, between them. Uh, I mean, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has also said that a, a presidential summit uh, could follow uh, this meeting. Uh, obviously, the tensions are still very high. And um, as you said, um, you know, American officials, uh, including President Biden, are warning that uh, there remains the risk of some kind of military operation by Russia. So these diplomatic efforts are, are critical. Bloomberg's Henry Mayer in Moscow. Thanks for bringing us the uh, very latest there from Russia. Well, let's get some analysis now with our next guest, Marie Demoulin, who's Senior Policy Fellow and Director of the Wider Europe Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Marie, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Let's just take a, a bit of a step back. The tensions in eastern Ukraine have been going on a long time, haven't they? What is, what is Russia's contention? What does Russia want from this whole situation? Well, what, one could say that at the start, the destabilization of the Donbass region was a way for Russia to keep leverage on Ukraine's trajectory. Um, and this has been going on for the last eight years. Um, now, there have been negotiations on the settlement of the conflict, which have uh, scored little success so far. Um, and it could be uh, that Russia by lack of a possibility to impose its own vision of the settlement in these negotiations, is now trying to achieve the same goal, i.e. keeping control of Ukraine's trajectory by other means, by military pressure and by a negotiation on, with the U.S. Mm. on Ukraine's status vis-à-vis uh, -vis NATO. I mean, amidst all of this high-level diplomacy with the biggest uh, you know, military powers in the world... One has to think about Ukraine. We've heard a number of times in the last few weeks that they want people outside of Ukraine to dial down the rhetoric. What does Kiev want to see, do you think, from, from the West and from this situation? Well, Kiev is clearly expecting a clear support from Western partners. Um, now, Kiev has also been signalling that 
um, they are ready to uh, withstand Russian aggression by their own means. But, uh, but it also means that um, they are expecting more military support in terms of arms delivery, etc., from their partners. And that's something uh, that not all partners are willing to deliver. Just talk us through Russia's game, if you like. This, this kind of making sort of, well, unreasonable demands, I guess you would say, you know, demands which Russia and the West and Ukraine, everybody knows, uh, are not going to be met. What, what, what's their strategy with this? Well, um, one could argue that they are expecting um, or hoping that at some point the West will give up on NATO enlargement because they know that it's an issue that is not consensual inside NATO. Um, And so they think at some point one or the other um, NATO ally will say, "Okay, let's give up on this. What they don't see is that it's a matter of principle for a lot of allies, and it's not just um, giving up on Ukraine joining NATO, it's also giving up on the the very principle of sovereignty. Um, But maybe they also are willing to demonstrate this way that uh, principles do not matter that much for Western countries, and that at some point one or the other is ready to give up on this. Mm. There is a stake of unity for for the, the allies. Uh, yes. And perhaps that was so why it was so important, um, you know, what happened with foreign diplomats and, and foreigners who were actually based in Kiev and, and Ukraine. Just explain with your perspective from the ECFR, the view of the different European member states. Do you think that policy towards Russia has divided Europe even further? I mean, th- that has been one factor here. Also, Germany obviously having a different view to many other countries. On the contrary, I think that in the current situation, um, Europeans are surprisingly united and they have been uh, clearly willing to display this unity. Um, And it's not only the governments uh, displaying unity. Uh, ECFR has conducted a poll in seven European countries. And what this poll shows is that the perception of the current crisis is also very much a shared perception throughout well, the seven countries we've been polling, at least. So it's, it's taken uh, all this uh, tension on the Ukrainian border to yeah, unite European policy towards Russia. That's interesting. What, what's the what's the way out of this? Is there um, some sort of compromise which would allow, would allow Russia to stand down? It's very difficult to say because the uh, Russian answers delivered yesterday are, as your um, correspondent said, uh, hardening the the Russian posture. So I'm not sure what will come out of the talks uh, between Blinken and Lavrov next week, but one can hope that progressively a diplomatic track is established between um, the U.S. and Russia to just reduce the gap between both sides' position. And on the other hand, um, one can also hope that the parallel track established in the Normandy format for the settlement of the conflict in the Donbass also um, keeps talking and reaches some progress, at least to de-escalate the tensions which have been very high on the line of contact in the, next, in the last few days. Marie, I wonder if I could ask you one question on the UK, uh, the UK's role now out of the EU. Um, it, does Europe see that uh, the UK following the US line most closely, very briefly? Is that is that the perspective? 
Well, in the current situation, I think there has been a lot of consultation going on through the NATO channel. And in this, um, the UK has been allied with other um, NATO members. It's, uh, and, and, and there is not so much dissensus between EU and NATO on these issues. So I wouldn't, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say that UK is following a specific line and more aligned with the US and with um, other EU countries. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So let's continue then with our special program focused on Ukraine. But from the perspective of Britain, the UK has said that there would be further sanctions against Russia if it were to invade Ukraine. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has talked of leaving Russian oligarchs nowhere to hide as the government has looked to curb the influence of Russian money illicitly coming into Britain. And to that end this week, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, says she's scrapping with immediate effect a visa programme for millionaire investors. Well, let's discuss that uh, and the other issues around this with Rachel Davies, Head of of Advocacy at Transparency International. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, the issue of corrupt Russian money being laundered or deployed in the UK has been uh, known for decades. How, How widespread is this problem? Uh, unfortunately, very widespread. I, I mean, for decades, the UK and London in particular has really rolled out the red carpet uh, for a corrupt, the corrupt elite from around the world to launder, to clean, uh, to spend their money. Uh, and I think it's a combination of factors that has led to this. For example, we have a property market where it is incredibly easy uh, to get dirty money in without even UK authorities uh, knowing who you are, when you combine that with the fact that we have a range of professional services, uh, lawyers, accountants, estate agents, uh, you know, available, some of whom will uh, willingly help these people uh, deal uh, and hide their money. Why do you think the government is talking of cracking down now then? Is this under US pressure only? I think it's partly US pressure. I mean, US officials have several times in, in the last few months actually said they're concerned 
that Britain's problem with dirty money will undermine any sanctions that are applied. Uh, but I think there is also a lot of uh, political pressure we're seeing in the UK as well. A few weeks ago, Lord Agnew uh, said that he thought the government weren't going to go ahead with their promised economic crime bill. And there was outrage um, from both sides of the House, the House of Commons, uh, was people kind of you know, saying to the government, this isn't acceptable, we have to be stronger on this. Um, and, and, you know, we're really hoping at Transparency International that the government will move forward with an economic crime bill this year to try and close some of those loopholes that allow so much dirty money into the UK. Uh, isn't the difficulty, though, that there is plenty of uh, Russian money which, which isn't dirty money? How do we crack down on on one bit and, and not on the, the rest we want to keep? And how do we know what's dirty and, and what isn't? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point. It's really important to say not all Russian money in the UK is from suspicious sources. Uh, but unfortunately, a significant amount is. I mean, we've identified £1.5 billion worth of UK property. So that's nearly 150 land titles uh, that's been bought by Russians who've been accused of, of corruption or um, unfortunately have very close ties to the Kremlin and there are suspicions around around that wealth. And that is here, that is in London property. And not much has been done about it. Um, it's incredibly difficult at the moment for our law enforcement to actually discover who owns what in the UK because of the lack of transparency over the overseas companies mm. that buy so much property here um, in the UK. And I think we need to make sure that our law enforcement are resourced and equipped with the right tools to act. And the government hasn't yet uh, closed those, those key uh, transparency mm. loopholes uh, within the UK system. Although there is the idea of having a register of beneficial owners of UK property, mm -hmm. which would give uh, people in the UK sight of who is buying what in Britain rather than just allowing people to yeah. hide behind offshore companies. And also there are the unexplained wealth orders which were brought mm -hmm. in. And that those have been used on occasion. They have been. Um, more needs to be done, I think, to make sure that they are uh, attractive for law enforcement to use and this economic crime bill the government has talked about would help address that and yes of course the property register which we've been campaigning for now for seven years we've had lots of warm words from the government they've repeatedly committed to it but they haven't yet done it uh, and until they, they they actually do it they put those powers in place uh, nothing will change um, so we've, we've, you know, in the last few weeks, we've had warm words from Liz Truss, um, from the Chancellor, from the Prime Minister himself, that they will move this register forward and put it into law. But we're still waiting for them to do it. So we're really urging the government to, you know, to table an economic crime bill as, as soon as they can. And what about this crackdown on so-called golden visas? The government says it's ending the programme whereby you can invest money and then get a, a right to come and uh, live in London. How useful is that in in tackling mm. this this russian problem so it's a great step it's one that that we welcome it is slightly shutting the door after the horse has bolted um you know we have something called the blind face period which is between 2008 and 2015 of of the golden visa scheme uh where lots and lots of uh, people were given visas without any checks on the source of their wealth and um, that's about 700 um, Russian individuals came through that scheme during that time. The government has apparently done an internal review uh, on those uh, successful applicants during that period, but we're still waiting for that review to be published. Um, so we don't, you know, we don't know what they found or whether they've acted on it. And we're really urging mm -hmm. the government to, to publish that as soon as possible. When it comes to the issue of Ukraine specifically, I mean, now that, that this is being used perhaps as leverage by the UK in this 
bigger geopolitical story. Do you think that there is an opportunity to do that, that the crackdown could you know, bear fruit on, on the geopolitics or has the opportunity to use uh, you know, dirty, illicit Russian money in London sort of been lost because it's already entrenched, as it were, in the system? I don't think it's too late. Um, there is a lot of dirty money here uh, in the UK and the longer that the UK authorities don't act on it, uh, the longer they send out the message, hey, this is still the playground for the corrupt elite, you know, come here, use your money here. And that will conti- that will undermine uh, any action on sanctions, for example, that the UK or the US wants to take. Uh, it's not too late. The UK could move forward new measures. The UK could take a tougher stance on these assets. And that would send, I think, a really clear message um, yeah, that London, you know, we won't continue to roll out the red carpet uh, for those who want to use London uh, to back up uh, their suspicious feelings, their, you know, their dodgy activity. Are you at all worried about the effect on, on London's economy? Because, uh, as you say, so, so many people with, with Russian money have links to, to, to Moscow and links to the Kremlin. That's how R- Russia works. That's how people make their money in, in, in Russia. And do, do you worry that by shutting out all that money, it's going to be it's problematic for a lot of sectors of, of, of the UK economy? I think it's important to say, you know, not all of the money will be shut out, just just the money that has come from corrupt and criminal dealings. I think there's, there's a real question there about the economy and, and who is benefiting. I mean, we look at London property. There are so many homes in London, so many homes when we have housing crisis, um, but they've essentially become empty safety deposit boxes. You know, you, you look at some of the research that's been done on these tall towers where no one is signed up on the electoral register, where there's very little electricity usage. There's, there's no one in those homes. And I've, I've spoken to, you know, if we think about the local economies, particularly in London, I've spoken to people from different communities who said, oh, our community used to have a dry cleaner pub and news agents they've all shut because there's no there's no people traffic there's no one walking past these places and using them and you know these these local businesses are are struggling and i think it's really important that we make sure that that uk property is not a home for illicit finance but it's not just seen as as like i said an empty safety deposit box uh, but it's actively used by people who live here who can invest uh, in the local economy in london Mm. Uh, the Conservative Party has received um, a little over £2 million in donation from Russian donors since Boris Johnson took office in 2019. Is there any evidence that any of that money is is uh, corrupt or from uh, suspicious sources or untoward? Or is that uh, all you know, money that is uh, you know, above board from legitimate business sources? I think generally in UK politics, and not, not just looking at the Conservative Party, but, but but more widely, we do have a problem uh, with big money in politics and the influence uh, that can bring um, donators. You know, I, I'd love <laughs> I'd love a system where everyone has equal access to power and everyone has equal say over what rules are passed and are not. Um, and I think that that big money in politics does bring a big risk. And partly that's the system as well in the UK. Um, you can donate to a political party if you're either a, a UK citizen or you do through do so through a UK company. But again, um, there's very little transparency over who really owns and benefits from UK companies. So at the moment, it's actually relatively easy for foreign actors uh, to get foreign money uh, into UK politics. And that's kind of why we are calling... Uh, for Companies House, which holds the, the UK register for UK companies, uh, to get more power to actually analyse, verify uh, and investigate the information that's submitted to the register on who really owns so many UK companies. 
just put us into a bit of global context for us. Are the UK's rules on these things particularly lax? Obviously, you know, in London gets a lot of Russian money, much more than many other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. How does our policy sit, sit in that in that context? And what does it mean for our relations uh, with the US have obviously been asking us to, to crack down on dirty Russian money? Yeah, I mean, in some respects, the UK is doing better than other places. For example, we actually have uh, a central register of, of the true owners of UK companies, although it's, it's not working as well as it could. Uh, in other respects, there are other countries that are leading in certain areas, such as the US. But I would say no one globally is really doing this really well. Uh, so uh, we're not we're not exactly first uh, among, amongst a good a good batch. And I think the places like the UK and the US really have, a, I think, a higher responsibility to get this right because we are such a magnet. Uh, for dirty money from around the world. And I think, you know, there are so many loopholes, existing loopholes in the UK system that the UK really needs to kind of bolster uh, its efforts in order to get this right and to, you know, to, I think, try and save our reputation as a place which is safe to do business, which is good for clean business. And I think that there's more to do on that front. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.